This morning, God willing, we'll be examining verses 47 through 56. And in this whole section from the Lord's Supper through his teaching his disciples, through his praying in Gethsemane, we do see how much he loves us. Um, that he would go through all of this for his people. He doesn't have to. He's doing this for love of his father, but for the ultimate sake of his people. Beginning by reading God's word in verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up a Accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Amen. Let's pause and ask God's help that we would understand what the Holy Spirit has here for us. So Father, we pause as we continue to study together on Sunday mornings the high point of Holy Scripture. As we have an upfront and close view of your son's glorious work. All we pray, O God, that we may not sin against you and him and against your spirit by thinking lightly of these things or thinking little of them. We ask, O Father, glorify your son among us in part by removing from our minds and our thoughts every untrue thought about him, or maybe it's just a lack of thought about him. And we pray that you would continue by your word and by your spirit to plant your son, the truth about him, deep in our hearts, that we would grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. It's amazing whole section of scripture and we walk and tread here reverently. We should. Uh, we come to the text and in a sermon like this in a sense we need to handle the text. We need to order our thoughts about it, but let's be clear up front what we're asking God to do and what the scriptures is meant to do is handle us. In the Gospel of John, in the episode, in the account of this, when they asked for Jesus and he said, I am, I am he, at that moment, we're told the whole crowds fell back. And It's speculation as to whether that was an exertion of the power of God or whether that was just their dealing with the reality of hearing the I am say I am. 
But make no mistake that the Holy Spirit, in the way that he records these last moments in the earthly life of our Lord before his suffering and crucifixion, the Holy Spirit is intending for every one of us to be leveled, our hearts to be brought low, to fall on our faces before the majesty and the glory of our King. And I say this soberly, and I say this reverently, if you're not blown away by Jesus in these verses, there's a very dangerous reality. You will not be blown away by him before you are bowed before him against your will before you enter into the lake of fire, which he talked about. Every knee will bow. And it is the grace of God in giving us the scriptures, and in particular this portion of the scriptures, such a slow, methodical walking through the last moments of our Lord's sacrificial, mediatorial life, so that we might be awed, that we might see our sin, our need for him, and for the glory and the completeness of his accomplishment. We are meant to be leveled, and may God make it so. I want to begin this morning by just backtracking a little bit. We covered this ground last Lord's Day morning. But if I'm not mistaken, in Matthew chapter 26... When Jesus is praying to the Father, that catches our attention, where he says in verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I noted this last Sunday morning, but I I want to just reiterate it and expand on it a little bit at the front of this morning that we should not read into that any kind of unwillingness on the son's part. He is fully submitted to his father. He has come for the very purpose of saving his people from their sins, as the angel announced. And that's why his name is Jesus, Yahshua, Yahweh saves. He knows why he's there. It is not ultimately to teach some nice lessons about how you can be a better citizen and save the planet, as so many liberal Protestants want to make Jesus into today. He came to save his people from their sin and to establish the kingdom of God, his kingdom on earth. So he, he wants to do his father's will. That's why he's there. There's no sinful inclination in him to disobey his father He is tempted in all things as we are, Hebrews tells us, but he is not tempted in the same way we are in this sense. As Jesus said, Satan had nothing in him, nothing on him, and that's not true of any of us. Satan has a lot in me to work with, a lot of material to work with. Temptation has a lot of good starting ground in my corrupt heart and in every other human heart. Not so with Jesus. He is born the holy child, the holy one. He has no sin nature. He is a true man, but not as we are in the sense that he is without sin. So he is not trying to step aside. He is not trying to disobey. It is not a sign of weakness. In fact, chapter 26, verse 39 is part of his glory. The fact that he prays, if possible, let this cup pass from me, is a testimony to his holiness. It it is a holy aversion, a holy desire to not drink the cup because the cup is the cup of being made sin for us. The cup is bearing the indignation and the displeasure and the wrath of almighty God that's a holy aversion that's a holy prayer not a prayer of weakness a prayer of strength it's a prayer that reveals who he is if if the holy spirit 
had not recorded here in the Gospels this prayer, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, we would have reason to both doubt both the holiness of Jesus and the sanity of Jesus, well, even maybe thirdly, the humanity of Jesus. If he knows what he's about to go into and to face, if he's a holy man, sinless, he knows he's about to have the sins of his people imputed, credited to him to bear their sins, if he knows he's about to have the wrath of God bear down upon him, is an expression of his sanity and of his humanity and of his holiness that he prays, if possible. It's a holy prayer. So there's lots of speculation on that. Be careful with the speculation. And just follow the Holy Spirit's lead in the text. He's trying to keep our hearts and our minds riveted on the person and the majestic work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His uniqueness, his holiness, his strength, his character, his kingliness. It's awesome to behold. And I I do not want to take too much time on this this morning, but it will help us maybe at this point as we move forward that we remember that the scriptures and the mystery of the New Testament teach us that this, this Messiah foretold in the Old Testament, the the servant of God, the messianic figure, the descendant of David, who would save his people, is this mysterious figure, is a true man, but also somehow God at the same time. And we understand through the teaching of the New Testament that Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son, one with the Father and the Spirit, who took to himself a true human nature. We sang this morning, emptied himself, but we need to remember he didn't empty himself as his divinity. By the way, that's not possible. One of the most basic truths we learn in the scriptures about God, God does not change. And we learn in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, pertaining to his divinity, one with the Father and the Spirit in all of eternity. Jesus didn't empty himself of anything. But what he did is, if you sense, he humbled himself by becoming a man. Not that he changed in his divinity. He didn't change it in. Rather, he took to himself a true human nature. He became a true man. One person, two natures, divine, human. Mystery, yes. Get your head around it, no. But to keep it important, absolutely critical. This is our Lord, who is a true man, holy, our king, staring down not merely the devil, not merely the failure of his disciples, not merely the betrayal of Judas, but staring down and staring at, taking upon himself the sins of the world. Incredible. Incredible. He is the model man. He is the new and second Adam. We noted last week that Adam was tempted in a garden, but it was a perfect garden. And all Adam had uh, before him, if he passed the test, was joy and bliss and the promise of life. Jesus, he passes this test, resists temptation. He has before him the cup of agony. After that life and after that the kingdom, but his is a trial unlike any other. And so Jesus looks to his father in prayer. What a time of prayer that was. And his father, this is another just Aspect. I want you to be clear in your hearts and minds about the Father in these moments. There is within maybe evangelical Christianity, especially these days, I don't know 
uh, neglect of the father, and somehow he's just the quiet, you know, um, unfeeling justice figure. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. He is justice, so is Jesus, so is the Spirit. The Father, far from being cold or neglectful, is looking upon his Son in these moments in love, in pity. And the Father is providing the Son with everything necessary to accomplish the glorious sin-atoning work he's about to do. We don't have time to turn there. All the way back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was baptized and entered officially into his ministry, his messianic ministry commenced. He was, we're told he was full of the Holy Spirit and led, publicly anointed by the Spirit, not that he lacked the Spirit before then, but it was a public sign of God's equipping him for his messianic mission. And he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness 40 days to be, and then to be tempted by the devil. And the Father equipped the Son with the Spirit and at his baptism these words which were audibly heard by Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father is not passive at any point in this entire episode. The Holy Spirit in the scriptures has our minds and fixed on Jesus, but notice this is a work of our Trinitarian God. This is the Father saving us, the Son saving us, the Spirit saving us. And we know this, the Father's ministry don't turn there, but Luke chapter 22, verse 43, we learn there that in praying that after Jesus was in agony, sweating drops of blood, that's his humanity dealing rationally with the reality of what he was about to face. And the Father sends from heaven, Luke 22 says, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Who sent that angel? Father. So the father is equipping his son in these moments with everything he needs. It's the father who sends the angel to minister to his son, to reassure him that he's loved. Amazing. And in a sense, the true trial of Jesus' suffering was in those moments in Gethsemane, staring down the cup, facing undoubtedly the assault of the evil one. That was his true trial. Would he submit to and trust in the will of his father and what had been revealed in Scripture? He understood that all the prophecies of what his father had revealed were concerning him and must be fulfilled. And it was not only the promise of suffering, but it was the promise of of rising from the dead. Remember, he said to his disciples numerous times, and on the third day will rise. He knew that he would die. He knew that he would rise. And he knew that the kingdom was coming. But as he looked in the moment at the suffering that he was about to face, would he trust his father and submit to his will? And of course, the answer is yes. He did. He did. And he triumphed. In face of the overwhelming sorrow of being misunderstood by even his closest friends, they can't even pray with him in his hour of need of being utterly abandoned, utterly alone with the Father in that moment, destitute of any visible support until the Father sends an angel. In and through that whole period, our Lord triumphs. And what you see is when, in verse 45, he comes to his disciples and says, are you still sleeping and resting? 
Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinner. You see our Lord rising and our King stepping forward into the fray with his face set like flint, like a face of steel. His heart has been steeled. And you do not see in the rest of his sufferings and all of his mistreatment and all the brutality he will experience, even in, in the moments on the cross, even when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll examine that in the weeks to come. He moves forward with absolute determination and absolute sovereign command of himself and of everything that is happening around him. He knows what he's doing. And like the king he is, he triumphs. He looks after his own, his men. He loved them to the, own, to the end, we're told. And he turned now his face a resolute face of courage, of dignity, of determination as his betrayer came. Verse 47, we learn as he was still speaking to his disciples, trying to wake them up and saying, come on, guys. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, came. Let's look for a few moments at the cowardly betrayer and his thugs. You can call them crowds, thugs, whatever you want to use. Judas comes. Jesus knew this would happen, knew it would unfold this way. He knew where Judas had been when he left the upper room. The disciples didn't, but Jesus knew. And Judas comes, and notice he's accompanied, verse 47, by a large crowd. In fact, it's a large crowd, but we learn later in the text that it is crowds, because in Jesus, verse 55 says, to the crowds, plural. This is a motley assembly of various groups, representative, in a sense, of humanity and our rage against our Creator. This is a group, a group of people that usually don't work together. The chief priests and the elders, and they could hate the Pharisees and the scribes, and they all, they all hate the Romans and the soldiers. And, and then there's, there's probably unseemly real thieves there that have been just bought to come along. And, of course, the Pharisees, you know, don't like those types. This is, this is an uh, assemblage of evil men of all different types, but all united in a demonically inspired rage and hatred for this Jesus of Nazareth. And they come with a large crowd. Why? Uh, It would be speculation. Maybe they uh, are reflecting on what they've seen Jesus been able to do. He's never used his power to harm anyone, but they Judas should know better than anyone else that if he can still the waves, then probably he can stop a crowd of men. So just to be sure, they come with a large crowd. But I would suspect it has more to do with cowardliness. Sin always likes company. We always, humanity in our rebellion against God we're not all that courageous to step out by ourselves in our sin. We like to get a crowd and, and then we kind of, in our sin, and you're seeing this all in our culture right now, defying God. Yeah, yeah, if we can get enough people who, who think this way, like this way, then it must be true and, and we'll, we'll deny God, we'll deny the truth and, and uh, it's cowardly. It's just, it's a representation of us. Sinful, broken humanity in rebellion against our God and Judas leading them. I know we're tempted to have pity on Judas. I understand that. And that's because we understand that within each of us is that kind of corrupt heart. But there is nothing in the scriptures that calls us to pity Judas. Jesus ministered to him grace 
Jesus told him what was going to happen. Even as Judas comes up and kisses Jesus, Jesus says to him, verse 50, friend, do what you've come for. Jesus had been nothing but a friend to Judas. Was Jesus being sarcastic? I don't know. I I don't think so. I think it was one last holy declaration of the truth. Jesus had been nothing but a kind master and Lord and friend to Judas. Judas knew it. And if you're tempted to have any pity of Judas, think of Judas standing there looking into the eyes of a man whose character he witnessed up close for three years, a man who never did anything but love him, serve him, kind to him, a man who just washed his feet moments earlier in the upper room, who even now is calling him friend. And Judas so loathes God and Christ that he goes right ahead with his plan And he thinks nothing of betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. The kiss, of course, would be just a a greeting. It's common in in many cultures today for a kiss to be a greeting. Some of your families are are like mine growing up, and uh, I don't know where it came from exactly. You know, some of you are Italian or other things, and uh, I had to warn Carissa when she came into my family. There were certain relatives that might just, you know, when they greet her, never met her, just kiss her. You know, you just gotta. Yeah, it's just it's subcultures. And my grandfather, growing up, um, I when we go down to New Jersey on break, and I could expect he'd be out there waiting for us. And when I saw him, he didn't matter if I was a teenager, he grabbed me and give me a big kiss right on the cheek. So it just it's just a greeting. It's a greeting of affection. It's a greeting of loyalty of a. Of, of friendship and Jesus rather Judas carries that out as a sign to indicate to the rest of the thugs that Jesus is the one he had told them ahead of time this is what I'm going to do whoever I kiss verse 48 he is the one sees him Judas is an absolute willing leading participant Demonically, satanically overtaken, yes, but of his own will and of his own choice, betraying the Son of Man. It's uh, an ugly scene. Secondly, let's look at, we've seen a little bit of the betrayer in the crowds. Look with me for just a moment at the misplaced zeal of a defender. The misplaced zeal of a defender. Matthew doesn't name him. Mark and Luke don't name him. But John, in the Gospel of John, we're told, guess who this was? Peter. And I love him for it. Um, I, Peter gets kind of a bad rap. Uh, I'd follow Peter. Uh, I, yeah, he, he, he took a long time, but he, he came around. He had said to Jesus, I'll die for you. And here he is. He's living up to what he said. He's going to die. I mean, it's Peter with a sword and crowds, not like one crowd, crowds. I mean, this is, this is a whole range of thugs and soldiers. And it's just, this is martyrdom. There's no real plan here. There's no real hope. This is actually quite beautiful. We're going to see how Peter betrays Christ. But we need to remember that when everybody else was just standing around, standing idly by, that Peter took out his sword and started doing something about it. And I don't think he was aiming for the ear. So he was going for the head. And we learn also in elsewhere that that one who had his ear cut off was Malchus, a servant of the chief priests. Verse 51, he struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. I'm sure there was some howling and there's a whole lot of blood going all over the place. And and everybody's just kind of at a standstill, apparently, for a moment. And again, it's an indication that Jesus is under command of this situation. 
I mean, he, he's not, I mean, the men who are, Judas is doing what he's doing. He's satanically um, overtaken, uh, indwelt. These are evil men. But even over and above all of these evil acts, God in Christ is in command. And Jesus says in verse 52, put up your sword, put your sword back into place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Again, when I say it's command, I mean, how do you, you have a whole crowd of, of thugs and of men who want to arrest and they're coming up ready to seize Jesus. And there's this commotion. There's a sword. There's a scream. There's blood. And there's, you know, everything's by torchlight at this point. This is, this is in the evening. And yet Jesus' voice has such authority that when he says essentially stop and then has to clarify and says a few words, everybody listens. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't happen. If there's a whole crowd of guys up to arrest somebody or, um, you know, in, a, in an evil country um, where, where an innocent man is, is like this, just being abused, they don't pause and say, oh, oh, we'd like to consider what you have to say. But Jesus, the king, has commanded the situation, says, put your sword back into place, saying to Peter, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Now, I want to reflect with you for just a few moments on that phrase. That phrase has been so abused and has been made by some into a statement teaching pacifism. See, we shouldn't fight. We shouldn't take up arms. See, we shouldn't like guns. Um, shouldn't have brought up guns. Sorry, that's, that's a loaded point. <laughs> but Jesus, listen very carefully. Jesus is no pacifist at this moment. You are completely misunderstanding what's going on if you think Jesus is a pacifist. And by the way, Jesus has never been a pacifist. He was, is, and always will be opposed with all his being to evil. And he's never been passive towards it. In fact, all we learn that's what's happening right now. You say, well, well, what's he doing? All that's happening right now is wrath is being stored up. And if you look at what the word of God has to say in the prophets of the Old Testament, in the book of Revelation, and what do you do with a sword-bearing blood stained savior that's my savior that's your king he's not a pacifist he's righteous he's just he's under control he doesn't react like we do impulsively he is regal he is kingly he is under control he is master he is commander he is lord he is judge he is sovereign but he is not passive So what does he mean by this? Those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. His kingly assault. Oh, you better believe he's, he's marching forward. Did, did you think that he was the victim? He's marching forward. And his target is not some mere head of one of these little men in front of him. His assault at this point, and from the day that he set out and was born and came to this earth, his assault is at the heart and root of his people's problem. He's not merely going after a few evildoers at this point, or even the devil. He's going for the head, and that is sin and death itself. He's there to save his people from bad people. No. 
He's there to save his people from their sins and to eradicate sin and death altogether. That is his holy intent and his holy assault. The reason why he says those who take up the sword will perish by the sword, he's not there to merely die by the sword. He must be crucified because he's going for sin and death, not for a mere paltry little skirmish where a few heads roll. What will that accomplish? Lots of heads have rolled throughout humanity. And what do we have? We still have war. We still have conflict. He's going for the throat. Not physically, but spiritually. He is in the field of combat, and he is showing up to fight. And he's going to make sure that his death blow as our king and our captain is landed precisely and decisively once for all. And so some lopping off of the head of even the slave of the high priest is going to hinder him from moving forward, offering up himself as a sacrifice, bearing in himself the penalty, and putting death to death. He doesn't, he can't, he's not going to die by the sword. In other words, he's not going to die in some paltry little skirmish that means nothing. He's going to die according to God's plan, according to his plan for his holy purpose that will have a victory and result without end. Peter doesn't understand this. So Peter means well. But no matter what Jesus has taught his disciples over these three years about the Old Testament prophecies, about the necessity of the lamb to be slain, of the Messiah to deal with his people's sins, they still don't get it. They still think that their main enemy is external forces, whether it be corrupt uh, men in Jerusalem or the Roman Empire. They still don't get it that the real enemy is right in here. And Jesus is going to deal with the sin of his people. Save them from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and by God's grace, one day even the presence of sin. That's what he's after. And verse 53 should inform verse 52. If you doubt my, my strong teaching on this, listen, Jesus, I'm going to say this very strongly, verse 52 He is not making any comment whatsoever about the use of force in conflict. You're completely missing the point. He's talking to Peter in this moment. Peter, you don't get it. This is not the time. I'm not here for a mere physical conflict. And 53 informs verse 52, I said. Because he says, Jesus says, don't you think, do you not think that I can't appeal to my father and he'll at once put at his disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, Peter, I appreciate your defense, but you're misunderstanding things here. A legion at smallest was 6,000. So do the math. 12 legions of angels. I mean, one angel was sufficient to take out 188,000 Assyrians in one night. So, I mean, I think that they could probably handle this little ragtag crowd of thugs. Peter, my need right now is not physical defense. That's no problem. And again, don't think of Jesus as a victim The only way he's a victim is that he offered up himself. But as he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Don't think of this as a, oh, that's that's a terrible, how did that happen? It happened according, as we'll see in a moment, the plan of God and the will of God and the intent of Christ. He's doing this intentionally, knowingly for you and for me and for all his people. He could at a moment's notice call for heavenly reinforcements There's no problem of lack of power or resources. The problem, rather, with his disciples, even those who love him the most, like Peter, is they fail to understand the scriptures and the mission of Christ. That's why 
Jesus in verse 54 and then again in 56. Twice in this incredible moment. I mean, the, the drama of this moment. He's there, he's the crowds, the Peter pulls out a sword, lops off an ear, blood. We learn from another one in the Gospels, Jesus heals that ear. He puts it back on, and that's another indication of the guilt of Judas and of the crowd. They've all just witnessed Jesus heal this man's ear. Blood stops, ears back on, nose prosthetic. But they're going to... They hate him so much, they're going to go forward with it. And that's according to the plan of God. Because Jesus says in verse 54, How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? Down in verse 56, all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Twice, do you see that? At this moment. At this moment, Jesus is concerned about what the Bible says. Go figure. It's because his whole life was determined by the will of his father, and the will of his father was what revealed in the scriptures. He was there to carry out what had been said concerning the Messiah and what he would do for his people. Twice in quick succession, Jesus brings up the issue of the fulfillment of the scriptures. That's the real battle. Will Jesus move forward and fulfill and complete what the scriptures had foretold? Scriptures such as, we've already looked at, don't need to turn there, Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. It's a prophecy. It had to happen. And that's what's happening. Verse 56, all the disciples left him and fled. The sheep must be scattered. According to the mysterious plan of God, the shepherd, the associate of God, The Son, the Messiah, must be struck violently, as he will be at the cross. The betrayal of Judas. Turn with me for a moment to Psalm 55. Just a few more passages this morning. Psalm 55. I almost skipped ahead to make this our reading for this morning, our psalm reading, but maybe it'll be special in a couple weeks to look back at this. But Psalm 55, David, who was not only king, but David was a prophet. He was a prophet. God, through David, revealed truths concerning what God would accomplish. And in Psalm 55, verse 12, Through David, the Spirit of God foretold, this is the Messiah here. David speaking on the behalf of the Messiah who would suffer. The Messiah is praying against his enemies. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, says the Messiah. Then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. Jesus addressed Judas as friend. Jesus is conscious of Psalm 55 as Judas is coming up to him. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. And in case just any doubt as to whether you think Jesus is a pacifist, let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to shale, for evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. This is Jesus' prayer. This is the Messiah's prayer, the righteous prayer against evildoers. But it must be fulfilled that there would be one who is a close companion of the Messiah who would betray him. There are numerous other passages, but I want to close this morning by turning with you once again to that familiar passage, and we'll be turning here probably a lot in the next weeks, Isaiah 53. It is not by any 
stretch. The only passage in the Old Testament that speaks of the sufferings and sin-atoning death of the Messiah. But it is the clearest. And the disciples completely missed it. They completely skipped over this. Somehow, they reasoned it away. But all of this must be fulfilled. Verse 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53, for example, one day Israel will confess Christ as their Messiah, and they'll have to look back, and they will say, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. There was no piercing in the theology of the disciples. There was no crushing in the theology of the disciples of the Messiah didn't fit their plan. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That must happen. And if Peter were to start a sword fight and Jesus were to call angels and just annihilate this puny little group of thugs, How is the iniquity of us all going to fall on him? And so the scriptures must be fulfilled. Verse 10, he must be crushed and put to grief and render himself as a guilt offering, Isaiah 53 and verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of this experience. Knowledge of this suffering. Knowledge of sin in this way. He will justify the many. That is, he will make these, his people, righteous as he will bear their iniquities. Because, verse 12, he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, interceded for the transgressors. That is why Jesus is in Gethsemane. That is why when this group of little men, however impressive to us, but in the face of their creator, are able to seize the one who is unconquerable. Because the king is there not to win a little skirmish with rebellious mankind. He's not there merely to overthrow the devil. He's there to save his people from their sin and the judgment and the penalty for their sin. Therefore, he must, because the scriptures have declared it, this is the plan of God for the salvation of his people, for the entrance of the kingdom, He, with eyes wide open, with regal dignity and character, under complete control, without any fear or cowardice in his heart, knowing absolutely what he's going to do, what he's going to suffer. He's standing there in front of all these thugs and seeing himself betrayed by one who was a friend. And even as his disciples trickle away, he's doing it, our king, for us. To not just remove from us war. There will be a day when there's no more war. To not merely remove from us the devil. And there's a one day when the devil will be tossed in the lake of fire. And he will be no more problem. But he's going for sin and death itself. So that through his living and dying for us and rising for us. He can remove Peter's sins completely and yours and mine and all who believe in him. 
all of our misunderstandings, all of our, our cowardice, all of our betrayals. He can remove those because he bears them for us on the cross. And so that when he rises from the dead, that those the Father has given to him, who come to him in faith and who are united with him, can be risen, raised with him, to reign with him in his kingdom, world without end. I love this Savior, do you? Let's pray. Our King, we bow before you this morning. You're so different from us. We're so cowardly. I confess that I wouldn't even have the courage of Peter. But it's not about us, it's about you. And you knowing full well who we are, who your disciples are, you went forward. We love you. We worship you for your holy submission to the holy revealed will of your Father. That you went all the way through that for us. We pray, O God, that you would continue in these weeks of studying and preaching through this portion of your word. Just strip away every low, false, unworthy thought about Jesus from us. Just strip it all away. And leave us, Holy Spirit of God, with the truth about our King and all of his glory and majesty. That we may adore him and love him and serve him and worship him and long for him, and wait for him, and anticipate being with him. We pray this with thanks unspeakable. Amen.